Okay, welcome back then to Warrior Wednesday, Fastship Performance. My name is Tim Davies. We've got a great guest with us today, uh, Simon Ackham. He's down in the green room down here. Uh, let's get him straight out pretty much. I'm just going to introduce him real quickly, guys, because we don't want to waste any time with this guy because he's got a lot of knowledge for us and I really want to bring him out and share some of that with you if you possibly can. So let me just quickly put this up before we uh, talk about Simon, though. Uh, I would say, guys, if you are wanting to ask Simon a question, then use a super chat if you can. It's sports channel, and I can see it there. It pins it there, and we can see exactly what you're doing. Else, just use capitals or type question first so that we know it's there. Simon can see your questions. I can see your questions, and we will jump on some questions as we go through. If you are looking for uh, DCS Flying Guys on Shadowlands, then by all means, you know where to go. It is patreon.com slash Tim Davies. We've got a great crowd in there. And DCS today, you wouldn't believe what just happened today. What they dropped like it was hot, fam. They've um, brought in new clouds and some other really, really cool stuff. And new clouds look just like, he says, preparing it. This is an F-16 here uh, with a new cloud structure. So when I'm teaching formation now, what used to happen with the clouds, guys, was they were all random. So if you're doing BFM or ACM or something, you didn't know where the other dude was. Because different clouds. Now, when I teach formation in the same way that I did on this aircraft here, guys, by the way, the clouds are the same for you that they are for me. They're real cloud structures. The update is super big and it's downloading right now. However, um, what it means is I can show you how you maneuver around the clouds. However, you need a pretty decent graphics card, a pretty decent computer and all that kind of stuff. And it does obviously um, cost a bit of money um, to buy all that kind of stuff. And obviously, you have to pay me lots of money to train you. So don't have to pay me lots of money at all. It's actually very cheap. Guys, let's bring Simon out then uh, whilst we can, whilst he's here. Now, Simon is the author of the book, The Changing of the Guard. And the reason I use enough hands here, guys, because it's almost 700 pages. But you, you end up getting through this quicker than you realize. And you need to go back and read stuff again because it's really, really good. It's, it's very readable, which is frustrating because a lot of my stuff isn't. So I'm going to ask him how he does that. Changing with the Guard, the British Army since 9-11. The book tells a story of almost two decades of the services experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan. Critical of the British Army's leadership at times, it tries to start an honest conversation about these conflicts. The service's performance in them, questioning the lack of senior accountability and also looking into the relationship between the UK military and the British people. Now, Simon's written for The Economist, GQ, Bloomberg, uh, Outside and New York Times and co-hosts the writing podcast, Always Takes Notes. So let me bring Simon out. Simon, welcome to uh, Fast Performance, and you are up. Let's get let's get better windows here. Let's better Hi, windows. Tim. It's it's great to be here, and thank you for having me. That's all right. No, it's great that you actually come on. It's really good. I must admit, I I, I would not normally have picked up a book this big, and thought it was. Well, I've just got into it basically, and I've even marked bits in it. I want to talk about it if possible, but there's a lot in there to talk about. And to be honest with you, that will probably take us quite a long time. We're going to work through all the bits. Um, Things I want to talk to you about, if it's all right. The initial bit then really was you've been called deliberately controversial and confrontational. You've also been called <laughs> an angry young man and criticised for lack of experience in the British Army, which I don't understand why you necessarily need experience in the British Army. Though you did have it because you did a short service limited commission when you were 18, I believe. Mm, yeah, so I, I did uh, what was variously called an SSLC or, or a gap year commission before I went to university. So I... Um, in 2003, 2004, and that I suppose was was the long origin of the book. So uh, I then studied English at university. I had a scholarship to go to the US to go to journalism school, uh, and then I then I became a journalist. So I worked at the New York Times in New York, um, in West Africa for Reuters and for the Economist um, and for Newsweek in the UK. But I just when I came back to England in in 2012, the end of 2012, I had this interest 
in the army, which I had seen 10 years beforehand, and, and really in, in what had happened to it. So I went to Afghanistan in 2014 to do an assignment for The Economist and realized that a huge amount had changed and that I, there was an opportunity to write about how the institution had changed. But right from the beginning, what I felt was that there was an opportunity to write a book about the army that was really a book about Britain, that would use the army to make a, a broader argument uh, about Britain. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that, as you say, there's been a lot of coverage of this book and it's been pretty polarised. I mean, I think, I think I can kind of understand where that's coming from. It's a very emotive subject. And particularly in Britain, we do not really have a tradition of, of a kind of very robust public conversation about our military. The way a serving army officer I spoke with a week or so ago suggested that there's this idea of indemnification, that, that the army is, is essentially indemnified. It's almost an insurance term against public criticism. And I suppose the argument I make in the book is that that's problematic. Yeah, it is problematic. I mean, at the moment, I think people that watch this channel know that uh, I'm trying to hold the well, the service to Royal Air Force to account here for flying training at the moment. It's taking seven years to get a, a young guy or girl through to the end of this aircraft here that I taught on for about a decade, seven years. So these people are joining when they're 24, maybe 25. They're actually becoming frontline when they're in their early 30s and, and yeah. trying to start families. Um, and the problem is, it's, it's one of those, I would say it's a complex problem. It's, it's not a complicated one. So it's almost like a wicked problem, but it's one that we could see a mile off and it's still going on now, even 10 years later. So it's, it's one of those things that, um, unfortunately, I don't really know how to solve it, but you're right. I think now... It did appear in the Daily Mail recently, in fact. Um, it didn't come from me. It came from the person who submitted whatever the report was. But it is now getting some airing, as it probably should. And it has gone through the Public Accounts Committee as well. The I, spoke, I listened to you when you were speaking to Rachel about your background with education. Uh, and you, you were talking to Rachel on your podcast, which must be a bit weird being interviewed by your co-host. But she, she sounded great by it, didn't she? She sounded really good. She, yeah, she was she was game with it. which was Yeah, yeah. She was like, oh, I thank you for being here. It's a bit weird. Yeah. But um, you obviously went to school in Cambridge. Hmm. You had academics as parents, which I'm assuming is where the writing comes from. No, not at all. Oh, okay. I mean, my my father's a zoologist and my mother's an economist. Uh, so they they were completely, I mean, they were very supportive of it, but they were not um, literary or, or writerly people. So I didn't, you know, I, I grew up in a very academic environment and went to a very academic school. And I think one thing that was very valuable for me from the army was was to be in a different environment and you know to see that there are other forms of value and and other forms of wisdom as well beyond that but writing for me was was a kind of compulsion really from from childhood actually and i don't you know i, I don't think i was necessarily inherited but it's been something that's been hugely important to me and, and i suppose my career has been about tailoring to find to turn that into a job or a profession yeah i think that's it when one thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about, really, and I don't know whether I mean it's a bit of a weird subject, really, to be fair. But one thing I noted: obviously, you work for the, the New York Times, which mm. tends to be very well, not very, but it's a liberal leaning. I, mean, I suppose journalism is a liberal leaning. Uh, in the UK, we'd call this left, but of course, in America, it's, it's a liberal thing. So it does, does lean that way. You then wrote about the NHS as well. There's there's something in, and then you wrote about the British Army. You, you've written about these things. There's something in there about institutions, isn't there? Um, there's something about accountability. There's something about, I think hierarchy maybe and this is maybe we yeah. can explore a bit later on once we obviously you know talk about the book and things like this you you went to columbia journalism school in new york city then you uh, it seemed to me you were i'm not saying i don't want to use the wrong words here don't i'm not trying to put words yeah. in your side. Were, you, were you were you moving away from something were you oh yeah definitely you, yeah, yeah okay, uh, okay i think that's true i mean i'm very happy to you know to talk about that yeah, yeah, no, you know um i spent five years so I, yeah, I, had, I went to the army when I was eighteen, which was definitely a kind of adolescent reaction to the to the Milo that I'd grown up in. Although it also followed because 
as I say in the book, we did cadets at school, had a very inspirational yeah. teacher who, who led people that way. Um, I went to Oxford. I think, again, I know you talk a lot about, about failure um, mm. in, in the podcast. I didn't get into Oxford when I first applied, uh, which, you know, is, is far from the end of the world, but in the, certainly in my family, it felt like the end of the world. And I think that was an early experience that I had of, of failure and actually of coming back from failure, I went back the next year and reapplied. And, and certainly in what I do now, that experience of dealing with failure, I mean, it, this book has come out and it's had a big splash and everything, but mm. you know, there's 10 years of work really in this book behind it. And and that experience of dealing with failure is, is key. And I, I went abroad and I think, yeah, certainly I was trying to, I was abroad for five years. It's interesting, I've seen the, in the chat, someone saying the New York Times is a Marxist organization. I mean, I, um, <laughs> I, uh, I worked there in, in 2009. So it was somewhat before the culture wars had kind of taken off in earnest in America. But, yeah. you know, I, I, I buy your point on that. But I was then abroad for five years. So I spent, um, after I finished university, I spent a year in Egypt. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent at that stage, studying languages. I then had this amazing opportunity, which was really life-changing, to, to go to America with my fees paid. Went to Columbia, worked at the New York Times. I then had to leave America, which was quite a dislocating experience. But because a condition of the scholarship I was on was that they paid for you, the U.S. government paid for you to go, but then the the kind of deal was that you would have to leave and go back. For you weren't eligible for an American visa for two years, basically because they wanted you to go and proselytize about America, understandably. And so I had spent a year and a half building up all these contacts and connections in the US, and then I had to go. It was quite dislocating. And I had a year where I sort of bounced around. So I did um, I did an internship in, in Istanbul with Reuters, did an internship in, in Berlin with a German newspaper. And then I, um, I, went, I was offered a, what was called a stringer job in, in Sierra Leone for Reuters. So basically the deal is that you're, you're effectively a contractor. So you, you can't work for their immediate competition. So not for Agence France Press or, um, or Associated Press or Bloomberg, but you could write for newspapers. And, and these, there's a long established tradition in journalism of that being a way that you go and break in. And I went and I worked in Africa for two years. So I had this, this five year period kind of in my early 20s, 22 to 28 or so, 22, 27 when I was abroad. But certainly, you know, I think I was trying to put some distance between myself and, and where I'd come from domestically but also educationally and so forth and a bit of a conclusion that i came to actually was that it doesn't really work doing that you know that actually trying to you know that, that sort of whatever you're you're carrying with you is remarkably air portable and i i was i had this interesting kind of point of departure when i was 27 so i'd done these two years in in west africa stringing uh, which means you're, you're, you're contributing to, to a media organization and i was offered two jobs so i was offered the congo job for reuters which is like it, it's the kinshasa correspondent so if you're not in journalism you wouldn't have heard of it but it's well known as a, a very acknowledged stepping stone role and i was offered a kind of roving west africa gig for the economist and i, and I came home i turned them both down and i came back and yeah i had to, i had i sort of squared myself with my you know family and and things that are that were coming from that but that was kind of key because actually i don't i think there's analogies in the military but if you go to a sort of rough and tumble environment you certainly what i find is like a lot of people are in flight right you know because oh, yeah. ultimately being some being living in something an environment that is difficult is is easy because you know if it, it, and that's the, the most extreme example that i would say is, is conflict because you are everything narrows you don't have to worry about you know paying you know you paying your council tax but also that, that kind of it is a, it is a life deferment strategy in many ways and i think in, in what i know you talk a lot about coaching but i think what i have found is important is you have to kind of come back and grip your shit basically like get you know get your get your house in order and then you can move on and do the big 
projects that you want to do, be they creative or commercial or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. This is why I didn't go to Saudi Arabia to fly um, these or these. I'm going mean, to have to come back at some point. You know what I mean? I'd have yeah. made you know, big money out there, but you've got to come back. I'd rather come out of the military in the in the, the manner that we do as we stumble out into this whole crazy world that's absolutely chaos, of course, and then just sort it out. Because coming, coming back is really hard, though. You know, it is. Yeah. It is a really. I, I mean, I I was away for five years, and I was relatively young. You know, I was, I was twenty seven when I came back, yeah. and I found it profoundly difficult. But I have a friend now, but who's a very ballsy journalist who spent ten years, um, you know, covering Iraq. You know, she's covering ISIS, all all that kind of thing. She's coming back now, and it's really difficult. You know, it's really yeah. it's really difficult in in the same way that that leaving the military or leaving that environment is. But I think you're right. You do have to do it at some point. Yeah, you've got to do it at some point. you got to face up. That's all I do is hold a mirror up to some men, especially when I do the individual coaching. I'm literally there making sure I hold them accountable. That's the whole point of the Spin Recovery Program is group accountability. Um, and we've got seven guys on that program at the moment. In fact, I'm starting a program up for women as well, but I've got a, a business partner in America called Keishu who's helped me run that one because I can hardly stand in front of women and go, we're going to you know, do this stuff mm. like a woman to be involved. Um, so, yeah, okay, you bounced around. Now, you speak German, but you don't write it, as you found out when you're in Berlin. Uh, you're obviously in Sierra Leone, and you have written novels yeah, every single time you write a novel, you you couldn't publish them because something would happen. It was professional. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I I wanted to be a novelist. That was what yeah. I've done. I've done an English degree. I had this passion to write. I wrote three unpublished novels in my twenties, um, which actually I think is not atypical for people who then publish novels yeah. or who publish books of, of one sort or another. Um, one kind of very autobiographical one, and 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 some others. And then I moved. You know, what was interesting was I was developing this journalistic career and I was doing kind of hard news for Reuters but the the real interest that I had was what I suppose what the Americans would call literary nonfiction. so this idea of of longer form writing initially at magazine scale but later in books and so I was doing I wrote profiles of, of former warlords in in Africa and that was the way the way kind of that I wanted to go and and then I moved to writing nonfiction. so you know it's the change of the guard but you know interestingly and, and the comments about how readable it is i'm very touched but it is readable because it's a narrative right it is a mm, story yeah. and certainly with my i'm actually really keen to pick up the fiction writing now and to have another go at it and and all of that kind of thing um and i think i know i think i know a bit more about it but yeah i mean i think you know literary careers are based unless you're very lucky or very well connected like it's based on a lot of misstarts and and failures yeah. and pickings and people don't see that people only see the outside you know yeah, of course you do. And it's it's not it's not necessarily bathed in gold, is it? I mean, it's not the most wealthy thing in the world as well, writing. It's yeah. we all know that. Um so anyway, you have written seven hundred pages worth. It did take you six years. You did interview two hundred and sixty people over about three of them, didn't you? Yeah. And one of one of the fascinating things about this book, if people haven't listened to anything else that um Simon's spoken about on any other podcasts, was the way that the Ministry of Defence tried to stop it coming out. Yeah. Uh now I am, I get loads of spears for this all the time from loads of other people in the military all the time because, of course, I came out. So I'm not, by coming out of the military and doing something else, I'm not validating their life choices of staying in. So it's very easy for commanders to get on my text. And I've had Valley Station commander on here recently because I criticized his train set. You know, of course, of course, I'm criticizing it. But um, he's going to write to me, isn't he? And he's going to say, please don't put flight safety reports online. And I'm going to say, well, I'm not in the military anymore. So unfortunately, you can't stop that. Penguin Random House was the second offer you took. Uh, it wasn't the highest money, but you took it anyway. Um, you had to get. Shall, 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 shall I just tell you what happened? Yeah, can you? Because yeah, I'm interested yeah, yeah, in the copy approval and how it got cancelled, and then you had to go across and get it into the eight press freedom things into the Guardian. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was very difficult. So, and again, to to explain this in a way that um, 
you know, I, I, people who have no familiarity with publishing, there's no reason that you should. But the way that a nonfiction book is, is sold is generally it's sold off a proposal. So if you're trying to write a novel, you would be expected largely to write the whole thing and then try and sell it. But a proposal is it's effectively a sales document. It's, it's a substantial thing. I think the proposal for the change of the guard was maybe uh, 16,000 words, 60 pages. And the classic way you cut it is it's, it's three, three sample chapters in a synopsis. Now, for this, it was a bit different because it's such a re reported, heavily reported book that I hadn't done the reporting at that stage, but I included a narrative of this trip I'd done to Afghanistan in 2014 and a sort of synopsis of how it would lay out. And it, it sold and it had a lot of interest. So this was in 2015. And again, it just in, in terms of some of these broader topics that you cover, it's interesting how this worked out because I had conceived the idea in 2013. I then got hired by Newsweek, by this new European edition of Newsweek, on this kind of dream job to just write five or six big magazine pieces a year. It all seemed you know, great. And then, um, and the, the army book got put to one side while that was happening. And then, fifteen months in, the Americans pulled the funding. The magazine collapsed overnight. We all got fired. And that, you know, that's a difficult position to be in. But it then meant that I kind of put a fire under me to try and sell this book. So I, I swapped literary agents, and my new literary agent. Uh, within five weeks, I think, had ginned up a, a five publisher auction. So an auction is what happens when multiple publishers want a book, and it's your kind of dream situations arising. Yeah. And having had yeah. this this long-standing uh, failure at being a novelist over the, the previous decade, this was obviously extremely gratifying. So it was auctioned five ways, um, which is thrilling. And yeah, I didn't take the top offer because I, I liked the editor at PRH. I then spent three years writing the book alongside my magazine work, so not, not full-time. And I interviewed, yeah, hundreds of people, which was all fine. But then in with any piece of nonfiction writing, what you then have to do and where it kind of comes together is you have to cross-check what people have said. So you have to, you, yeah. know, you know, where he said this, they said that. And and what I was determined to do was to write in this American tradition of, of literary nonfiction where it reads like a novel, but everything is nailed down and everything is fact-checked and everything is referenced. And what you realize is that is not, always the case so the classic example is i find is if you're reading a book about the second world war and it says like the sweat dripped down his forehead it's like how do you know that like how do you where you've just made that up like there's no you, <laughs> as soon as as soon as that has happened it's you're like okay this is we know what's yeah, going on. yeah and I, I was like you know determined i wasn't gonna do this so i then had to do this like pretty vexed process of kind of cross-checking and right to reply. And I, I knew how to do this at magazine scale. So a magazine piece to be five, five to 7,000 words maybe. This book is 185,000 words as published. So you know, it was 35 times as long. So all of the techniques didn't work. It was too time consuming. And I was certainly feeling my way through this and yeah. could have done things better. And so basically the, the basic sense of what you have to do is you have to write to everyone and say like, these are all the worst things that are said about you. What is your response? And you do that because it makes it fair, you know. And this book, although there's been a lot of fury and outrage, like no one has really said any of it's wrong, right? Yeah, or, right. You know, that it's not. It's all. It's all pinned down, and that is where the rigor certainly came from. And but but it's undoubtedly that you know, I had to do this on a grand scale, and I had created a sort of bow wave of, of outrage and horror throughout most of the the army by by this point. But the, the, what I would say is like that's why the book. That's why where the rigor of the book comes from. So there was certainly you know a lot of unrest, but. It was all, it, I, it took three years. I finished it. Um, I went and walked off. I went to walk across Spain when I finished it because I was absolutely yeah. exhausted um, kind of mentally as well when, when it had been done. It's a big trek. I came back. And it was, you know, it was published in March. And then, there, then what happened and what precipitated it 
was that I'd had this visiting fellowship at this place at Oxford called the Changing Character of War program, which is a, a kind of academic program there. And my supervisor, who was an academic, a smart guy, well-read guy, with, with very close associations with the army, when it had become clear that the book contained criticism of the army and that, yeah, that was causing this unrest, mm. had just ghosted me, really. So he wouldn't yeah. see me and he wouldn't contact me. I'd forced a meeting in the end just by writing to his colleagues and saying, look, I paid fees to attend. We had this pretty surreal encounter where he, he told me I should write more about sport in the army and anonymize senior people. And I was like, okay, let's kind of get a tenor of what's going on here. And I hadn't had further to do with him. And then right before it was published, um, I, he, I see that comment, when the truth creates anarchy, you know something is wrong. Very good. Um, right before it was published, I had to do a final bit of, of kind of what's called right to reply in, in journalism. So, so writing to someone to get, basically saying like, this is what I'd be told about you, what's your response? And I, it was someone I couldn't get contact with before. I did it. They got very angry, wrote back, uh, CC'd everyone they could find associated with the book uh, online which meant the publisher, but also meant this guy at Oxford, who I'd had no comms with for a year, something like that. He then immediately fires off an email to PRH saying, you're going to get sued if you publish this. I said, look, I don't think this is credible. Like This guy is extremely tight with the army. They, PRH went back to him. He then wrote what is, I, I call the sort of scaregram, basically. I would okay. describe yeah. It. Yeah, yeah, it's PRH basically saying, you're going to get sued by this guy, this guy, this guy. He named three three senior commanders. You know, he, he basically said, like, I, what I'd done was an outrage and everything. And this caused PRH to panic. Um, they went into a kind of sacred conclave. They then came back and said, we demand that everyone in the book agrees in writing with everything that is said about them, or is happy with it, which is A, impossible, but B, yeah. it, it's just not, that's not journalism, right? If you're no, doing it, it's not. I mean, the, the basic point is that like, you offer everyone a right to reply, you pin everything down, but you know, you're not letting them edit it. And they also right. said I had to give the book to the Ministry of Defense and take on board their amendments. And, and so with that, there are, there's a big theme in the book about the restrictive policies that the mm -hmm. army has that sort of stuff but uh, you know there are these things called authorized books which means that you you get access to serving people but in return you sign a contract with the MOD and they can see it and i i basically knew that was a really problematic way to work and i wasn't willing to do it so this was never a book like that from the start so prh demanded that we had lots of negotiation and submitting stuff wouldn't move their position um they then cancelled my contract so they asked me to pay back all the money they'd given to them and to pay, they'd given to me and to pay half their legal fees, which is clearly a kind of scare tactic, basically. In yeah. that, you know, they, I didn't have that money, I'd spent it. No. But, but also just tactically, I mean, again, this is kind of interesting in the context that you talk in. You know, this is all, this book is out now and sort of I won, as it were. But yeah, in terms of how they played it, I think their strategy was poor, basically, because, you know, A, it was based on panic. B, it was like, I assumed they'd behave like a news organization mm, for a use yeah. impression, and they weren't, and that was my naivety. But it also, the fascinating thing about what happened is it put, although this was like me, the, the impoverished freelance writer versus the billion dollar publishing company, it actually put them in a position of greater jeopardy than me and, and everyone involved, really, because suddenly you're a big publisher saying that you're going to give, you know, you're demanding that the, your books are edited by the government and then this guy at oxford had tried to suppress student work and th these are career fouls right for yeah for of course. doing those jobs so so you know they suddenly from trying to kind of silence me it then became very important i didn't tell anyone what they'd done so there was a kind of interesting changing power dynamic at that stage so i then and, and i think another point about it is this was obviously extremely difficult but 
writing the book was really difficult as well. And I'd had a lot of pressure put on me while I was doing that um, from, from, you know, ultimately from trained killers, you know? And so I was relatively, you know, not really as scared from, you know, book editors trying to be difficult towards me. So I then coordinated eight freedom of the press organizations to write to PRH, which, which they did. And it didn't move their position, which I think was unsurprising. But mm. what it did do, again, tactically, was I, you know, I obviously was going to say this was a terrible outrage. It was my book, but it needed it needed the, the kind of moral heft of other organizations to come in on it. And then it ultimately needed someone who was not me to write about it. Because again, obviously I was going to say it was terrible. So uh, when that didn't move their position, I gave the material to the guard and they wrote about it. So ultimately yeah. the situation could get refereed by someone who was not. Yeah. Me. And yeah, that, cool. that was unimportant. And then to cut a long story short, there was then a big battle to get the copyright back and Scribe, who an Australian publisher, did it. So, I mean, it was it was utterly savage, basically. And it was also, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of you know, froth and, and stuff flying around over the book now, but I actually feel, I actually feel what is happening at this stage is a very collective experience. It's a lot of people saying like, I was there, this was a mess, I'm glad you did that. No, not always, but often like, I'm glad you yeah. did this, I'm glad yeah. this is happening. Whereas when the situation in 2019, it was just horrific because I was completely on my own, you know, basically oh, sure. back, back to the wall with it. But it is, I think, you know, in terms of what, what people can draw from this, who've not, you know, because there's a lot of lessons for this, from things that are completely, you know, completely different to writing books or, or stuff like that. And I worked with a coach. I think that's an important yeah. point to say, like, a, a really robust Danish guy who like didn't play by London rules for, you know, any kind of, any, I worked with a coach, you know, I talked a lot to friends, I, I lent a lot on like mentors as well, you know, that, yeah. that kind of thing. So, you know, yeah, it's been a character forming experience really. Well, the first of many, hopefully not like that, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's just, uh, yeah, just the, the, the MED are very strange. i tell you what happened to me. I'm only briefly the 30 second thing. I worked out in Afghanistan, uh, under, in Kabul under someone called Lieutenant General William B. Coldwell IV. Now he was um, a massive advocate, advocate of getting the uh, service people to speak because in Iraq back in early 2006, I think just as YouTube was coming out, um, they were getting mortared and rocketed and everything. And of course they, they, they were fixing all the locals, trucks and vans. And they said, or one of the young people there said, well, if we just put all the work we're doing for the local people on YouTube, they can watch it and then maybe they'll stop rocketing us. And he said, well, okay, we'll risk it. And we did. Well, that's what he did back then. He brought that into Afghanistan as well. When I worked under him in strategic communication in Kabul, I learned all this stuff. It's amazing how effective it was. I brought it back to the, uh, the Royal Air Force to try and do some comms with them. Not interested whatsoever. Yeah. Not nothing at all. Which is I why very, you. I was very interested with with the video. I watched. The, the, I think it's maybe one of your early ones where you do a, a low flying sortie and you're just in the back seat, kind of talking, talking yeah. through it. Was that was that? Because I found that fascinating. I mean, I don't. You know, I'm not a pilot or anything, but yeah, I'm trying to know, explain. I, 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 I found, yeah, you're just saying what's happening. Was yeah. that was that sort of sanctioned and signed off? By no. The no, nothing. And I got in trouble for doing it as well. And that's my argument. The whole point. I came back from Afghanistan and flew on this airplane here. So I had six months worth of strategic communication and a really it was nato training mission in afghanistan so ntma alongside what petraeus was doing of course um which was the war effort we were doing the, the training side and the, the commander of that was the three star and of course petraeus was the four star in fact i met petraeus i got one of his coins off him with the four stars on it it's downstairs where we always keep it in the in the in the lavatory of course but that's just what we do on the wall isn't it everything goes on the wall there isn't it in the toilet um it's a little shrine to self isn't it apart from this one of course but no I, I bring it back and of course my my thing was saying what the u.s army were very very good at we've got a lot of time for the u.s army and the u.s marine corps in fact they're very good at um putting the word out of the of the the guys on the ground pretty much um in fact what happened when 
uh, Lieutenant General Calder went back to command the US Army North, he actually said, I think it was on Levensworth, I can't remember what base he's on now, he actually said, let's get Twitter, Facebook, I think it was Flickr at the time, onto these camps so that the soldiers can broadcast what they're doing. And of course, you get the you get the proud, you know, young guy in front of an M1 Abrams, and he's come from the ghetto sort of thing. He's got his massive, he's a you know, he's a tank driver or something. And of course, people say, well, if he can do it, then maybe I can do it. And then yeah. all the recruitment went up. Of course, it was fantastic. Not interested at all. Now the Navy are pretty good at doing it. The Navy put their um, their young sailors and everything in front of the camera, and they say, "Talk about being a chef on a on a ship. What's that like?" Oh, all right, it's brilliant because I came, you know, with the and, and that's great. The Air Force, I think, it comes down to something that you do um, you do talk about with with identity. We want to talk about the British Army's identity, where you talk about the country or the army itself being the the little sibling in the U.S. British relationship, and I'm I'm fascinated by this side of it and. I really don't want to talk to that. And I think the service, being the youngest service, the Royal Air Force, being you know, 100 years old, and the Royal Navy, of course, here at Dartmouth, being, you know, well, how old pirates and stuff, basically, just in uniform, aren't they? Um, there is this, this issue with the service where it doesn't really know what it is. It doesn't know what the identity is. And one of the interesting things you mentioned in the book here is, is what is the British Army now? What is the role for the British Army? It's going to come down to 70,000 people. It couldn't put 10,000 people in theatre when it had 100,000. It couldn't sustain those numbers. Now it's got 70,000. It almost becomes, uh, what is it? What is it going to be doing? And I think the main thing about all this is that I don't think that conversation is even being had within the army. It's certainly not being had within the service, apart from Project Astra, which Mike Wigston, who is my squadron boss on the big jet over here, he's uh, leading as, as a chief of air staff. But if you ask someone, what is Project Astra? They say it's the future of the Air Force. You say, well, what, what is that? space i mean i think there's two there's two points that, that i agree with, with what you're saying there there's, there's two points that come up in response i think the first it's a real idea i explore in the book is that there are reasons that armies are rigid like there are reasons why this happens sure. and ultimately it's as i put in the book it's to create a social structure that can work when people are exhausted or terrified or don't know what's happening like and and that is i think there's a really interesting conversation to be had about like how true that is. If you look at how like a, a mountain rescue team works or something like that, you know, they work in a dangerous environment, but they don't salute each other or anything. So there, there, there is a discussion to be had about how how much rigidity you need there. But assuming, which I think you probably do, you do need an element of rigidity, then the problem is in almost any other context, rigidity is really problematic because it makes it very difficult to respond. And as you say, it makes it difficult to bring people in from, uh, bring ideas in from below. And then you tie that with this other problem, which is, very difficult for armies, but it's totally not their fault as well, which is that war doesn't happen all the time, right? So how do you, you know, how do you, I make the analogy in the beginning of the book of imagine if you're a doctor, but you'd never operated on a live patient. Like, how do you, how do you decide who's good? How do you do that? And that, and also the fact you don't bring people in from the outside, there's no lateral hiring. So those, those circumstances put armies in a, in a very difficult position. But I think, you know, it, it is a, a truism throughout history that those things make it make it very difficult to, to react. I mean, just as we were talking off air, I think maybe an interesting point to raise is, is about the idea of the debrief. You know, where does the, the debrief sit into this thing? I did another podcast, a Veteran State of Mind podcast last week. And Geraint on that was saying, you know, the debrief is it, at a tactical level, it's absolutely bred in to the, the military. You do a company attack, yeah. you know, it's all there. And I'm sure it's the same in aviation. And I, the yeah. point I was making is having listened to and enjoyed your episodes of, of looking back at particular crashes, seems that in aviation, and you'll know more about this than I do, but there is a tradition of a pretty robust wash up after 
something goes catastrophically wrong because you need to prevent it happening again. And what the argument I make in, in the book is because the stakes in Iraq and Afghanistan were relatively low, because the wars were discretionary, the system was not geared to, to look honestly in the mirror at what happened. And I don't think the guys who ran these wars were stupid, and I don't think they were callous or anything like that, but I think the incentive sets they were facing were wrong. And I also think the easiest way in some ways to explain what happened and why is, is this idea of institutional preservation. That I think the people at the top of the army and, and militaries in general, I think they love their institutions. And I think love is the right word. And I think that is totally understandable and that they try and do what they believe is in the best interest of the army. You know, essentially to avoid what was happening now, endless cutting, cut down, reduction in service, all of that. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, right. if, if, you, if you play it the other way around, if you assume that we'd gone into Helmand in 2006 and, and it had been a glorious success and it would now like a kind of Central Asian Denmark, right? Can you imagine what the, you know, the army would be in a, it would be like the Navy post Falklands. It would have a, you know, yeah. tremendous survivability. So, you know, I think this idea of how people are incentivized is really helpful to look at to understand why things happen. So not awards then? Awards are a fascinating part of it. So I, yeah, I, tried, to, I tried to lift the lid on, on mm. awards because... Like the point is that no one knows how it works, right? It's like a it's like a mysterious machine where you know the gate lifts up and they're presented in the London Gazette. And I I told the story of, of how medal, particularly two thousand four, are made through the example in two thousand four of the Bahari VC with the PWRR in Iraq, tracing the process of the citation up all levels. But again, the point is like what is astonishing is how subject it is a to you know just how much a commander will write people up how subjective the system is but the broader question of like what kind of behavior are you rewarding and how does that fit with the campaign you're fighting so the example i make in the book is that that that, that soldiers going on an operation face two kinds of incentive they face a formal incentive structure which is promotion and gallantry medals and they face a kind of informal structure which is was YouTube films partly like who could make the ultimate record of their experience, but also this idea of Ali, like what is cool, yeah. what is desirable, yeah. and that is people would suggest you know that that would surprise people I think because this is a, a major national institution and this idea of coolness is something we intimately associate with with young people, yeah, but true. but the military is full of young people and young people really care about what is cool and 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 I traced and I think you know fairly convincingly this argument that this kind of aesthetic and this desire to look and behave a certain way. These cultural factors did play a big role in shaping what happened in certain circumstances. Yeah, and you talk about Sergeant Alexander Blackman, of course, who was four two commander, Royal Marines, still a ground fighting troop. My father was four five, so of course I'm, you know, don't talk about four two. But of course, the very difference in in those two commandos itself, how four two had this attitude. This, I guess, it was Ali attitude, wasn't of going in there and kicking doors in, and and they're going to was it blunt the enemy or whatever i can't remember what the blunt term was. Yeah. yeah that's right whereas four five was a very different approach um and it, it's just very interesting how uh, that hasn't well i say hasn't really come out i suppose but it just seems that there was there was sort of miscommunication in fact in something you write here when we talk about masculinity and it's fascinating this because i talk about it a lot with with my men's groups of course um in line of fire what it was what is it what is it to be uh, what it is to be a man in today's british army so we actually say yeah. here um, yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was in the FT. You say, to some, the military is the last bastion of unreformed masculinity. Soldiering is one of the few jobs you can train for over a working lifetime and never do for real, which I think is why a lot of the ex-servicemen or the veterans I speak to, the ones that are suffering from some mental trauma, a lot of it is because they never got the opportunity to do what they trained all their lives to do. 
Right. Uh, I'm not saying there's any better or any worse than someone that steps on an ID or anything like that, or steps on a landmine or anything. I'm just saying it is a factor. And I know, I know, in in the flying world here, especially, you know, some of us never got to drop in anger. You know, and some some people did. This is one of those yeah. things that happens. But with um, the one thing I want to talk about with the warrior culture that you mentioned here was one of the things that was said was um, the latest obsession with so-called warrior culture, hyper-masculine macho archetype, may have begun with its formal inculcation in the US military in 2003, which we all know, but was gladly taken up by the British and others. Now, especially one of the things we've been looking at is the Australian Special Forces and what's happened to them. And they've been kicked into touch pretty much, haven't they, over uh, what's happened over there. So one of my questions for you then, if I, if I can, I'm not mm, trying to sure. dig. So nationalism um, or masculinity in itself, is this an issue that you've been looking at before somewhere and you've, you've thought, well, I want to explore this a little bit. I mean, obviously I get called nationalist all the time because of the flag here, but that's a flag I took of a warship that I served on. Uh, and when I left, I took the flag with me because it was being decommissioned anyway, the ship. So uh, I don't think there's much wrong with nationalism, although of course it is at the expense of other countries and maybe some people that are, you know, Brexiteers will, will go, yay. And other people that, you know, Remainers will go, Ooh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to go down there. Is nationalism and masculinity something that you are, Invest, investing time in writing about, you think? I think masculinity, definitely. I mean, I think trying to ask a writer why they're writing what they are is a really interesting question. We do it all the time on the podcast and writers on the, on the podcast I do. And writers are really bad at answering it because I think it's not, it's not genuinely something you're conscious of. I think what is mm -hmm. certainly true is that with most, certainly these big nonfiction projects I do, be they a book or a magazine piece, I'm trying to scratch an itch or answer some question. Probably. So with this, I think the quote with the army book, I suppose the question I was answering was, you know, what would it have been like to go back to the army? Or should I have considered oh, okay. stay, staying in the army or, or, or getting at that? But I think this idea of, of masculinity, I am a man and it, it interests me that. And, and clearly it's a, it's a vexed subject in our in our current debate. I mean, I think the, the classic argument about this would be, and this has been laid out by Hugh Straw and people like that, is, is as, as we, we understand the ultimate not the exclusive, but the ultimate job of a soldier is to enact violence. And therefore, should they have a kind of pass from the, the values and standards of civilian society? Should they be deliberately kept outside that value set in order to maintain their edge or their focus? And there, there are strong arguments on, on both sides yeah. of that. The classic argument you know, in favour of that is if you do not have that, A, an army might become soft, but be it, it might become bureaucratized. You know that that is the risk that it becomes yeah, cool. a, a, a kind of box-ticking exercise. I think my feeling is that 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 it is it is a the 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 other side of it is is giving people absolute carte blanche for you know for stuff is is dangerous because a as you say like most people in peacetime militaries have never done the job for real and saying that you have license to do everything it's um. I think it's also sort of generational in what you see at the moment with the military, you know, um, as you say, pumping these the points about language and, and, and sort of tone and, and stuff like that being promulgated by like an old Etonian guards officer at the top. You know, it's, it's like, how do you, how do you square those, those kind of things? But I, but I think, yeah. I think the broader idea is I would say, I think the army is still in a, a post-Herrick identity crisis. You know, that is yeah. the, the, I'd recommend reading, it came up today on the Wavell Room, the military discussion site, a review of my book that I thought was very thoughtful that said like, I read that. I read you know, that. yeah, I thought, I thought it was good. I, 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 you know, I thought we really engaged with it and said, you know, you would expect any other institution that has not achieved its desired output over yeah. two decades would have a serious period of introspection 
and you know self-analysis to try and understand what had been going on and the army doesn't do that and i think the reason that they're so fearful of it is because is this idea of institutional preservation that they fear yeah. that if you threw that open that like the floodgates would come open that we'd get rid of our army or anything like that and i can understand why that might happen but the problem is that you know as as in a an individual context like the problem is not having a problem the problem is failing to acknowledge it like that's the same if you have a drinking problem right or a or gambling problem or anything like yeah absolutely. with any issue the first thing to do is acceptance and after that you can deal with it yeah so when we were talking about an action report like well no it wasn't an action report it was um an inappropriate behavior kind of thing that happened within military flying training where one of the squadrons at valley isn't working and this squadron wasn't working for a long time ago um 10 years ago and we managed to square it away the mike wigson the chief air staff wrote uh, a report on inappropriate behaviors that was a whole that's called the wigston report now i remember i flew at mike wigson on this jet you know and he, all of us had inappropriate behaviors i could list many things but it's very different of course isn't it as you as you sort of as you sort of move up, I suppose the the issue I have with the service is that that conversation isn't isn't happening either. I mean, as we're we're stretching out the the timeline for people to get trained, is that appropriate? Is it appropriate to get people into Cranwell and then immediately give them a year long hold where they literally sit around trying to find a job for a year? Then they fly the elementary flying aircraft. We give them a fourteen month hold where they sit around. And I mean, they're going blunt, of course, because skill fade is huge. Same thing when they get onto the basic flying aircraft, another year. And then eventually it's going to take them best part of a couple of years to get through this thing. And it's this is the sort of thing that you would have thought there'd be a conversation about, but it comes out as buzzwords instead. So we talk about- One thing I find, you know, I, I don't know much about flying, but I'm fascinated by it, is, is what that does kind of culturally. You know, if you think of your, your cultural- notion of what a fighter pilot is going back to biggles or something it's like it's like yeah. a guy in their early 20s right with with brill cream kind of buzzing barns or whatever and as you say yeah. like suddenly suddenly when they're 35 it's like as you say are they you know their risk judgments are different and oh, yeah. but but say i'm mean, just to, to throw it back at you like you know if 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 we were in a situation of general war and needed to produce fast jet pilots in the largest numbers we possibly could how quickly could you do it do you think I mean, you send them to my server, to be fair, Simon, because I run in a virtual world. I mean, some of the guys down here on the right hand side of the column that I fly with, you know, they fly with a headset on, virtual reality, uh, and we take them through the entire syllabus on this, but I've made it for the F 18 and the F 5, two other different aircraft. There are innovative ways of doing it, but the truth is, with the Royal Air Force now, you cannot do that. The way it's set up with the United Kingdom Military Flying Training System, you are looking at a, a five to seven year pipeline when it used to be three yeah. to take a guy into fast jets or a girl, of course. And the problem is, Women want to have families. Men want to have families. Yeah. Uh, you've got this person now that's doing a typhoon tour and they're doing one tour and they're leaving the service, which is we need them to come back and teach or we need them to come back and do staff roles. And, of course, they're, they're mid-30s now. They want to do something else. I mean, I left when I was 43, and that was probably about maybe five to eight years too late, but I was trying to help out a squadron here. I think the pressure's on the service now as well of doing more with less. You know, let's do more with less, shall we? That, that horrible thing, not doing less with less, but we're going to do more with less. That came out of the US Marine Corps, actually, one of the comments that I wrote about it. But um, that is a big problem where guys are just, when I say guys, I'm talking the women as well, um, they're just burning out. You know, there's just so much work on. They're on QRA, quick readiness alert. They're, they're down in the Falklands. They're deployed over North Syria, flying out of Cyprus. The families are saying, well, hang on a second, what's going on? Why are we living in, think about a fast jet pilot, Lossiemouth, Valley, Marham, Coningsby, not ideal places for a spouse to find a job, by the way, and not somewhere you probably choose to live either. I mean, I've been to two of those places. And I've lived there for 20 years. You know what I mean? They're quite remote. So I think there is a problem. And one of the things I was going to say to you is, why do you go to Sandhurst anymore? 
you know, there's no skiing, as you said, and there's no drinking anymore. What What is the, I mean, you, you'll be up with your LGBT plus stuff. I mean, that's going to be, you know, your bread and butter there, really. But the actual job you're signing up to do, is it still really that, is it still really something that people are, actively pursuing it's a a good question i don't really know i mean i didn't look the the book doesn't strictly end at 2014 with the afghan pull up with the helmet pull up but but that was the large focus but i raised that in the ft piece as you say that Mm, mm. what i was trying to do in that ft piece in some ways was kind of to show that this book addressed a number of aspects of military life that are universally known and accepted but never discussed so the drinking prostitution stuff like that and i thought that was important to to wrestle with some of those but I, I agree. It's like this this point that that culture that existed of of sort of boozing and adventure training that that's been pared back. The operational deployments are more limited, but at the same time, you know that is a perennial thing that these changes have happened. And if you joined the army in the nineteen nineties, you know yeah. you, you watch it, there's a Santos documentary from nineteen ninety six. It's all about training tomorrow's peacekeepers, right? These things are yeah, cyclical, cool. yeah. and they will and they will change. So I, you know. I, I also find it interesting, and I've asked on a couple of these interviews I've done, you know, I don't know what it's like if you're a 22-year-old junior officer coming out or or, a, or joining as a soldier, and there's some, like, crusty guy in his 30s going, let me you know, pull up a sandbag and I'll tell you about, you know, Herrick in 2008. Like, do, like, yeah. eyes just sort of roll, you know, in, in that situation? I don't know. And the, and the other thing is that these things... These things, these things can turn on a dime, you know. They can come out of nowhere, and the army will find itself operationally deployed. I think... I mean, I've just been asked to do a big series of newspaper extracts for the book in, in North America, which is great. But the point I'm going to kind of make, I think, is that all this stuff that, you know, the failure, the failure in operations, the failure to hold people to account, it, none, none of it really mattered this time around. I mean, it mattered enormously to people who were deployed in those conflicts and particularly people who were injured. But, you know, it, it didn't affect your ability to go to a supermarket and buy a Danish pastry on a Saturday morning no. in, in the UK. None of that was on the line. And if that, which is why in a sense kind of it didn't matter, but my point is like, it may matter. It may really matter again in the future. Now it's impossible to know, but you know, look at what the Russians are doing. Like if, if it really matters, then suddenly like the fact that we do not have an ability to hold senior people to account, we do not have a learning mentality that will really, really matter, you know? And you know, these things, these things are important. Yeah. And one of the things I was going to talk about was Bastion back in 2012, mm-hmm. uh, when uh, basically the UK had failed to invest pretty much in the security of the camp. And I think if anything, I believe the, the, the actual patrols around the camp have been reduced from like 375 down to like a hundred, hundred people or something like that. Yeah. There were two US Marines killed. Uh, I wrote about both of them. In fact, um, uh, the people that were, I think there were two US major generals that yeah, were retired. From that, and then we had an air commodore who, uh, Stuart Skeets, who was promoted. Uh, who's Skeets, was the, Skeets was the army guy, Skeets was the, the brigadier, and then there was Portlock, I think, who was the uh, yes, I've got it written down here actually. Jeff Portlock, uh, Jeff Portlock, you're absolutely right. Jeff Portlock was the promotion of group captain or air commodore, yeah. and Stuart Skeets was, um, actually ended up being a major general and the commandant of the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, yeah. So I think this is, I've written about this in, in the Times, mm. and I wrote about the book, and I think it's a striking example because. In many cases, in, in these kind of conflicts, you know, proving a link between an individual and an outcome is is difficult. But I think this case was pretty transparent and pretty open and shut. As you say, like the, the worst loss of, of US air power since Vietnam on the ground. Eight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the British had, uh, you, you were, were, this was their responsibility. Yeah. And that the US deemed, yeah, that they, they these two US Marine two stars were forced to retire. And even though, 
I believe, I'm not 100% of this, that the commandant of the Marine Corps knew these guys from when they were young officers. And his point was like, command is sacred. And this point, that in that situation, the British response was A, promote all the senior guys, give medals to the junior guys to turn a disaster into a good mm. news story, and just brush it under the carpet. I think, you know, I got an email from a serving major who was just like, I am really, I joined the army in 2011, and I am really angry about that. Yeah. It strikes me that that was, you know, I'm sure Skeets is not a, you know, is a, is a decent man, right? But the point is that you, you co-locate culpability and responsibility. That's what accountability means. So it may not have been your fault specifically, but like, it's your, it's on you. And I think that was an opportunity in 2012 for the military system to say, no, like, you know, in a case like this, we will, we will hold people to account. People will lose their jobs. And and that didn't happen. And so now you have this, I've written about this as well, this surreal system where you can lose as a, as a start officer, you can lose your job for like misusing the official Ford Galaxy at weekends or, yeah. or, or fiddling your education allowance, but but Absolutely. not for operational stuff. And it's it's problematic. Do you think Nick Welsh then, the Major General for the school fees, and do you think this is, I mean, because everyone was doing it, and one of the things you did talk about was the grey area. The yeah. like, it's almost like there's a grey area, and if you get it a bit wrong, that could be you that takes the rap that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, crikey, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not going to say which base I was on, but I knew a station commander that was doing it. When yeah. I was in for 20 years, um, absolutely, everyone knew he was doing it, but then a lot of people were doing it. I mean, I never was. I was co-located the whole time, but I can understand it, and I can understand if everyone's doing it a little bit, then why are you not doing it a little bit too? Because maybe you're the guy that's going to squinny up on us, you know what I mean? Come on, get get with the program. It's like JPA being a cash machine sort of thing, you know? So I, I wonder when I read that about um, Nick Welsh, I thought he's not the only one, and also there must be a lot of very senior people now, kind of worried that people are going to look back and go, "Well, hang on, were you doing that as well?" Because now you're, I don't know, three star, four star, or something sitting around. Yeah, but of course. I mean, I mean, the, the way the way that I look at that in the book is this idea of, of to use a fancy term, but the legitimate infraction. So this idea yeah. being that that military life is rigid, and as we've discussed, there are reasons for that. But that's not a like total accordance with all of the rules is almost impossible on a yeah. day to day basis. Right, it can't work. And so there has to be this system of, of breaking rules alongside making rules. So the classic example of this in, in the army would be this idea of the, the bakshi kit. So kit that doesn't exist on any official stores ledger so that if you lose your, I don't know, your, your SUSAP site for a rifle or yeah. something, yeah. you know, and, and you're in the quartermaster's good books, he can be like, okay, I'll slip you another one, don't, don't worry about it. And that, that is a, a sort of necessary smoothing. I mean, the classic example of this is in Vietnam, a helicopter went down and, and sunk in a marsh or something. And basically every quartermaster in the division had to give a list of what was on it. And they eventually worked out like the weight of this kit that had been lost. It would never have got off the ground. Basically. Yeah, exactly. But, but, so, so there is a system of breaking rules, but, and I think you're right. As you say, like CEA was like a legitimate infraction and this guy got the rap for it. And you know, by all accounts, he was a nice man. Right. But I think it's, you know, to try and understand this, this would have been what the, the call of, you know, at some point, Carlton Smith or very senior guys would have had to say, well, like, you know, he's been accused of it. He's broken the rules. We have to make an example here. And you can understand that that chain of thinking. But then there is this point of like, well, Bastion, you know, and then Basra, you promoted everyone who did this. And it's, you know, it's not that these people are bad, but it's that the system has no capacity to reflect operational outcome in, in career stuff. Just and it's also it's, it's also a bit about like the nature of rank. It's almost sort of almost the kind of sanctity of it. You know, that when you get to this, you know, two, three star point, it's almost as though you're a different category of being, right? You know, that that you are 
you know, the way people behave around you. And that, that would apply if you're running a big corporation or something like that. It's a function of hierarchy in any sense, but it's profound in the military. You know? So, it, yeah. um, you know, it's like he lost his job, but like lots of, and he got sent to prison. That is extreme. But like lots of senior people lose jobs. It is what happens. Like that is how the world kind of works. And the fact that we think about it in a, in a way that is like extremely shocking as though we've like brought down one of our, one of our deities almost. That's a bit how it, yeah, because we're not like the Americans will remove people from command. Mm. I mean, it happens a lot. When I was in Afghan, we had a guy removed from command. And you think, seriously, you're moving from command? They ship someone else in. That can that can do something else. Um, I like the way as well. You have been accused, by the way, of a lot of things. One of one of I know, one of which was um holding the Americans up as this as this kind of deity entity figure is they I think, can't do I think that's a fair point, actually, in some ways. I do think there is there is some value in that, and I think you know. The, the point that the Americans didn't win these wars either is is valid. But I think in in my defence, I would say that you know you'll know this if you had any experience of the the British military twenty years ago, like it, it looked down on the Americans. You know the whole the no, so. whole identity of the Brits was about Very not being yeah. not being American, yeah. and that idea did fall off the tracks. So I felt it was necessary to write a corrective to that. But I do I I would buy the point that the Americans didn't win these wars either. No, it's totally totally. Totally correct. And one of the things in your book here that I thought was lovely, um, that was someone had written on a toilet wall in Basra was how many Brits does it take to clear Basra? None. They couldn't hold it so they sent the Marines. And that was US Marine Corps, wasn't it? When um basically the, the deputy commander came down, I believe George Flynn it was, and he said, Um, I'll be sent here to ensure that Overwatch does not fail again. And he says, Overwatch is all about situation awareness, which you do not have, which is factually correct. I'm all about the factually correct statements on on, on FJP. And that's exactly it. And whenever I work with Americans in um Afghanistan. I was the whole, and I'm not saying I wasn't with the British as well. I mean, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of very talented people out there in the military. There, there are, but some of the Americans, the way they continually educate their people, in a way that we don't always continue to educate our people, especially in the service here. I mean, you're wrapped up flying jets. You don't have any time anyway. But they will put people back to school, and then they they get these generals out who are just fiercely intelligent, shockingly so sometimes. And of course, they've got a lot of them. And the other thing I was going to think as well, the West Point podcast you did. Mm. Uh, I can't what it's called. Um, Modern War Institute, yeah. That was right, the War Institute. They've actually got a podcast. I don't think the British Army do have one, do they? I mean, it's left to the wavel room to just talk about this stuff. Yeah, but... I mean, no, I don't think they do. Yeah. And the Americans are more, are more open with this. I mean, clearly, I think there is a sense that, you know, this is close to home for the Brits. And also there is a bit of a sense in Britain that, that uh, rigorous discussion slash criticism of the army is treason. You know, that's that's... What people, you know, I think treason is the way people think of it in some ways. Yeah, and right. if if that is our attitude, you know that that is only really a feasible attitude if what the military is doing doesn't matter to the majority of people. So you know, what one way to think about it is like if the Russians were in Basingstoke, right? like if you know that if the continued survival of the British state was on the line, this discussion would be very very different. And and the, but that's a slightly fantastical example. The, the counterexample in the book is Israel, who, after two thousand and six and their their war there in Lebanon, which is very problematic, like they did a pretty no holds barred yeah. crew, which let you know the, the head of their military resigned, like two major generals resigned, and everything like that, because because the stakes were really high, you know, and that I, the, I think the fundamental challenge is how do you keep focus and professionalism at aim when there's no operation, and when if there is an operation, it doesn't really matter that much to the country that's a very difficult that's a wicked problem in the classic sense 
It is. It is. I wonder, and one of the things I was thinking about, of course, looking back in your history and everything and what you've been doing is obviously journalism, people that you've written before. Do, 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 you, see, do you see yourself on, on the left of, say, the political spectrum? When And I understand if that's the case, and you may say, well, what is left, what's right? And I know there isn't really left or right, is there? There's What is liberalism now or neoliberalism? But do you, do you think that maybe like I do sometimes where I you're, you're pushing back institutions and hierarchies and you're, you're questioning... Um, uh, authority in a way and I suppose that's that's what we all do is we say well hang on a second if you know if these guys are getting this why is that guy who's responsible for it why isn't he is that something that because all your pieces seem to go into institutions I say yeah, it, it's a good it's a good question I mean I think with with the politics it's like I wouldn't describe myself as enormously political leaders I think a possible way to explain it is, is I can use some of my family background which might might give a bit of context on it and that my my grandfather was a Labour MP for for years and years and years in um in Scotland and steel towns and everything like that he wasn't from that environment he grew up in China but he was kind of parachuted in as a you know he, he was sort of slightly deracinated guy because he he was British but had grown up abroad so he was he was deeply in in a kind of old you know pre-1997 intellectual left-wing tradition but at the same time like my mother's relationship with him was extremely difficult because he was someone who um, maintained a sort of exterior facade of being extremely, you know, devoted to, to the, the causes of, of the, the working people he was representing, but actually at, at home was, was pretty difficult. You know, was it, my, my mother found yeah. like his relationship with him difficult. And I think, you know, I actually find, it's interesting to be, to be kind of, I think I do have this first of institutions, but, I, the thing that, that really gets my gut, actually, is, is insincerity or hypocrisy. And I think that, that I find equally provoking a kind of very, quote-unquote, lefty idea of, like, you know, a, a sort of, that it is more important to, to seem virtuous than to actually be virtuous and stuff mm. like that. I think, I think the thing that gets me, that triggers me, as it were, is, is hypocrisy or a distinction between institutions saying what's going on and what is happening. But I wouldn't, because because I would be equally enraged by seeing that on the left as on a traditionally yeah, institution. But I think I think that's you know my my family and British politics. You know that's where I'm coming from as an individual, and that probably has effects that I'm aware of and not and not aware of, as it were. Um, but I think yeah, there is something. I mean, I'm interested in power. I think that's something you know. The, yeah. the, some of these big early magazine pieces I read about were these guys, these warlords in Africa, who yeah. who were kind of kings in a Shakespearean way, right? They had personally killed people and they yeah, personally true. ruled countries. And I find that I find that kind of fascinating to dig into. But I also think a legacy of of my American journalistic education is this kind of quite you know, like American journalists believe rightly or wrongly, that it is a noble public calling and that it is about holding powerful institutions and individuals to account. And I think there's there's a kind of, and combining that with the highest level of factual rigor you can possibly get. You know, And I think that, that if you are going to do this, if you are going to delve into people's lives and dig stuff up and write about them, you know, what I find as a, as a writer, people don't respect you if you, they think you're just going to, you know, blow smoke off someone's ass. People respect you putting huge effort into trying to get stuff right. You know, that's the... Yeah. I do remember Barry Weiss left the New York Times, didn't she? Because I think she she found it overly... Well, it was going far in a direction that she didn't expect it to go in. And I think she... she I mean, so I can understand. This is why I look at 
things like the New York Times or American politics, which is very divided, very polarizing, of course. And I'm not saying, oh, you've come on here and you're from the left, therefore you're attacking the British army, because I know that's not true. I'm about fairness. What I like, is, I really try and go, you know, what is fair? What is fair in flying training, for example, is a great one, isn't it? What is fair? Is it fair to keep people in for seven years? No, it's not, because you can fail at the end and have to redo it all. And that's that's a good part of your life that's been you know, ripped away from you, really, by mismanagement of the flying training system by, you know, not only the Royal Air Force, but also by the Ministry of Defence itself. Um, I was going to go down for the, the comments. I don't think there's a great deal there, to be fair. I think people are, if people want to ask questions, whack them in now, guys, so we can get some questions Just out. Just out of interest on the flying training, like, because to, to apply yeah. a bit of the lens of, of why, like, why did that happen? How did it get to that situation? You know, that's, yeah. if I if I was writing about this, I'd be like, you know, this is, this is what happens. As you say, there's this unconscionable lag, that, that has taken place, but why, what concatenation of factors led to that taking place? Do you think? It's not all bad, to be fair. And a lot of the units within UKMFGS have been, have, have done all right, or doing all right, okay? And the equipment is newer. The thing about the Ministry of Defence was um, it would go to the Treasury every year. And one year it would say, I need, you know, one year it would say, I need 40 million, please, because we need some food for the troops. And the next minute, year it would go, I need 17 billion, please, because I need to buy 36 aircraft. And of course, the Treasury were like, oh, I was going to build a hospital. I mean, uh, so um, they decided to bring in, uh, privatize it basically decided to bring it in under ascent flight training and ascent have had a hell of a kicking but actually you know they're only doing what the contract says but the the problem is i think when you privatize an essential military resource like that it was to make it more predictable so every year was going to cost 250 million pounds over 25 years that was the idea so every year you knew what you were going to get 25 years it's about halfway through as i said some of it's a mixture of especially at shawbury mixture of civilian and mixture of military uh, all new aircraft some of these aircraft aren't really the best but then we you know Beggars can't be choosers. And actually, it, I think it's more of the military being, okay, so in a way, it's a civilization of some essential military services. The military flying training system by the Royal Air Force under Central Flying School was held up to high regard the world over. Everyone knew about it. I mean, the Pakistanis, we teach them, Australians, every, you know, Canadians, they all come back and they're like, can you teach us Royal Air Force? Why not? That's not going to happen now because they know it's been privatized. Um, and it's a real shame. And of course, what you lose, the biggest thing for me, what you lose, unfortunately, is this sort of spirit of core, in effect. It's the, the stuff that we're proud of because we built it ourselves. We're not anymore because we didn't. We're operating within a civilian system that's kind of militarized. And unfortunately, it kind of civilianizes the bosses as well. And then right. the workforce are like, well, I don't want to go back to Typhoon now because I'm quite nine to five about this. It's for those not nine to five though on this thing. I mean, it's better now on this thing to be fair, but yeah. the, 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 young, the younger aircraft on this one, it's not a great, um, I'm doing another one about it soon. In fact, that's a Hawk, is it? Sorry. Yeah, sorry, this is a Hawk T2 that, uh, that's at phase four. Right. Before you go on to what would be the Tornado GL4, we decommissioned that now, so now it's Typhoon or F-35. Um, there is a journalist in the Daily Mail that's investigating actually, uh, I think whoever's, whoever's come out from Valley and said something, they've shipped it into what's called the Independent Defense Authority, which the Daily Mail have then got in contact with. So it's a conversation again that needs to be had. Like these people are flying and they're in a very difficult headspace. And when you are in a difficult headspace, if you've ever read Matthew Syed's um, Black Box Thinking, for example, yeah. you, can, you can see he applies uh, aviation sort of debrief culture to the uh, basically the medical side and, and yeah. hospitals. You know that. But of course, when you're in, you need to be so solely focused on what you're doing for these aircraft. And this is why I left at 43 because I was distracted and trying to do typing jobs in other offices and all that kind of stuff and just burnt out basically. I mean, I'm, I'm done. I'm happy. I've done 20 years. There's still guys in there, not only on this airplane, but obviously on the front line as well, just running, running really, really hot. And a lot of it is because you don't have the control. I talked to, um, the individual uh, coaching clients I have, I talk about workplace and satisfaction, which is the, the three components, um, self-determination theory in effect, 
which is um, a competence, autonomy and relatedness. And of course, the problem of being a pilot in the Air Force when it's being run by a civilian sector, in effect, is, well, your competence has always been questioned anyway by your peers and by yourself. And you always go through tests and everything. But autonomy, you have none. Yeah. And relatedness, well, now you've got a bunch of civilians in there that you don't have anything in common with normally half the time. It's, you know, people are, it's stats driven. Now, it's just what it is. I think time is one of those things after a while it's like oh that's just how it is then and then, then you get this apathy don't you and then of course someone dies and once someone dies you start having the conversation which is exactly what happens with the snowbirds the canadian display team that i'll do a, a thing on soon where jen casey was unfortunately killed um the aircraft was 60 years old with old right. seats okay. um you know the training was lacking and now they're saying okay now we've had a fatality we'll we'll now invest because people are cheap Simon, I'm not going to say that. You know, we can I can kill someone on this aircraft and pay the widow a quarter million pounds and it's done. To upgrade the Hawk T1 that the Red Arrows use, with all, even with a moving map, even with the sat-nav. Like you're you saying it's got, it's got no, what is it, got no stall indicator or something like that. Yeah, so the T1, yeah, the T, this is a T2. So all the safety features on this aircraft are not on the ones that the Red Arrows are flying at the moment. Right, okay. They have none of them, uh, which is so sometimes they crash them. Unfortunately, you know, the money comes out, it's cheaper to pay off someone than it is, unfortunately, to... Uh, to update them. And I understand everything comes down to money. You understand it. I understand it. Mm. We can't all have new Challenger 2 tanks and stuff, can we? Because they're just frozen yeah. expensive. So we make do what we do. But my argument is, well, the reputation of the service is now so much more important than the individual. And that's the unfairness side of it that I struggle with. And I also struggle with the fact that we we can, we can have seen officers running around telling us how wonderful the world is going to be tomorrow, when actually today it's not wonderful and it wasn't wonderful yesterday. We still haven't got whole water in the blocks. You know, we're all talking about space. What about space? You know, space is the next thing. Oh, just give me hot water for a shower in the morning. That's the thing. Yeah. So it's, a, it's again, it's a difficult problem. And there's a lot of good people working really hard to make it better. Um, one I, mean, which I, is I think quite a useful idea. You should comment on points coming in. But a useful me metric or way to think I have to thought about looking at a problem in the military is, is to like, to what extent is this an area that the army has a monopoly on? And to what extent does this happen elsewhere? So, but, you know, if you think... The organization of violence ultimately is a, is a military monopoly. Like other people don't really do that, the police to a little extent. But like that is, you know, no one else really has an expertise on that. And it is, you know, you should defer to military thought and stuff on that. But, but like running a big IT project, for instance, is, you know, there are lots of institutions that do that. And a lot of them do it better than the military and things like that. But also, you know, maintaining a large fleet of tracked vehicles, right? Like mining companies have to do that and things as well. Like there are other other people who who can and can't do it and it, you know i think it's interesting to apply that lens a bit to here and that like flying fast jets well only militaries do that like there are complexities and difficulties with yeah, that's so, right. but if you break that down into as you say like how do you maintain a large fleet of these things or or how do you do it it it, it becomes more you know more kind of complex but, but so much of this comes back to that basic point of like the the core business is not happening all the time right like if we were you know, if we were fighting a major aviation war at, at this stage, then the resource tap would be turned on, that there would be... And again, just coming back to that point I asked earlier, which I'm just really interested on this, like, if we needed to produce, you know, viable fast jet pilots as quickly as possible in a situation of national emergency, like, how long would it take? I just, I'm just fascinated by that. What you do is you just, um, you just reduce the safety factor. So that's what yeah. you do. So you just hope we don't have any. I mean, in a way, it's the same thing as saying, well, do we carry on flying at low level anymore? This Most of my, I was quite lucky, in fact, uh, is, you know, I was flying tornado, low level valleys of Scotland at night on MVGs in night vision goggles. So 
I was lucky to be in that era that did that because that's never going to happen again. It's never going to happen right. again. And if you want to fly low level anywhere, because it's too dangerous. Well, it's just because it's it's the requirement. It's like the F thirty five is an incredibly expensive airplane. We haven't got very many of them. Many of them. Why do you want to put it down low level when it's yeah. stealth anyway? Put it high. Typhoon again. It's a it's a dominates the battlefield. It's about control of the air. So why race around low level in that aircraft? That's what that aircraft was designed for. Okay. It was a time when we had bases in Germany. You know. Um, go to Slough and Bruggen, all those kind of things. It was to go and drop, you know, your nuclear bomb on top of someone and hopefully you get home again. And you had to do it at a very low level. So that was just the job I had. Uh, it was a great job. And I'm, I'm glad I was on this one. It was a very mandrolic jet, shoe-mandrolic jet. Um, we had fluid women as well, but you've got to pull levers and make things work. So unfortunately, the aircraft, these things go on. I mean, they're easy, the aircraft are easy. That's not the easiest aircraft to fly, by the way. But the ones they go on from there are easy to fly. They're quite complicated to operate. So if you were going to put people on, what you do is you say, Let's skip the second stage of training, which are doing experiments with now, by the way. You will increase the probability of, of, of risk yeah. by a magnitude. Someone will take that. Someone will hold that risk. And this is what a senior says, oh, I hold the risk. Do you really? Do you really? Because then when they do crash and die, what happens to you? You don't You don't hold any risk, do you? You never, you don't get resigned or anything like that or retired off. You just kind of say, well, Because let's... there was this huge, this huge inquiry by a barrister, right, wasn't it? After one of the, after the Nimrod crash, was it? In, yeah, that's right. In yeah. Yeah. So they, which had introduced this idea of risk holders and... Yeah, Haddon Cade, yes, kind of absolutely. And again, I mean, I was on one for uh, one of the Red Arrows one, which is why I'm interested yeah. in the team. Um, and uh, so, so there are, and that was a very big one as well. Unfortunately, that was a fatality. So there are these ones that come out, and I think lessons really are learned from those. Most definitely, especially about. I mean, this question's down here about um, corporate and stuff, and uh, uh, there's some interesting ones, M and E contracts and things like this. But it's again, I think one of the problems and one of the interesting things, and I don't want to keep you too long here, but the rotation of command as well seems in America they seem to leave guys in command a lot longer. And we tend to just go every two years, right, you've done that, get out. 18 months is even better, of course, because you can see more of it, and then you can go up. And it's all about career progression as opposed to, and I don't want to be that guy that says doing a good job. I don't mean that. But if you, if you rotate so quickly, there isn't – I can't remember what you are saying. There was something you did mention, actually, with um, – Northern Ireland, wasn't it? Was it Lisbon, where there was uh, consistent, HQ? consistent HQ and they were running people forward? And I think, yeah, I mean, it was clearly really problematic. But as you say, it's it's what is it? It's problematic for operational continuity in theatre. It's really good at getting a large number of people through senior command points, and that is which is important for careers. And that's cynical. I mean, just just circling around a bit, another because I'm just interested to pick your brains as well. Another area that I had ambitions to look into in the book and never did. I was never able to get into it. Was was the royal family and helicopters, which I think is a really mm -hmm. interesting idea. And in that you think that like you know for generation after generation, or at least for several generations, like. If you're a senior British royal and you're a young man, the thing you do is go and learn and fly a helicopter and you yeah. you get through military flying. And the way it was explained to me, and this may be very crude, and again, I'll be interested in your thoughts, is that on those programs, the, the complexity is not reaching the required level. It's reaching the required level within the number of flying hours that are demarcated or given to you to, to get to that level. Yeah. And, and to what extent, you know, in terms of getting Prince Harry or Prince William, whatever, getting them they're qualified to what extent rules were were bent or things like that and i don't know i have no evidence on that but i no, think that is that is that is an interesting argument because it, it hits some of these points that we talked about about you know what how does one set of rules for one people about establishment of power and, and that kind of thing and i think i think that would be a relatively you know there, there is an interesting story i think to be written about that going back to the 70s like since it was decided that flying a helicopter is an appropriate thing to do if you're a member of the british royal family like how has that been achieved but i don't i don't know the rules or i, I don't know the information yeah, we, 
Um, Prince oh. Williams on at Valley with us up there mm. on, on the uh, search and rescue helicopters, and by all intents and purposes, he was a good pilot. I mean, remember, you're absolutely right because the Duke of Edinburgh, of course, uh, who's recently passed, had about 6,000 flying hours, almost twice yeah. as many as I've got, and he flew over 59 different aircraft, of course, um, in, in the Navy. I mean, they do have this. this it's a what I like about it is it's a young man. What should we what should we go and what do? What should we let's do with that? Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's go and fly aircraft for a bit. Uh, Harry obviously had a great interest in in the military, didn't he? And of course, unfortunately, as the Commandant of the Royal Marines, he's, he's lost that now by moving overseas, yeah. which he couldn't, and of course he really wanted to do that. Yeah, he felt a great affinity with that. So there is this, uh, there is this thing about young royals and, and getting into, into helicopters. Yeah, now I wouldn't say that I'd even expect them to do a full syllabus. I'd expect them to be looked after because they've got other duties. Yeah. So um, I don't think, did we fly William? He was on the squadron actually. I walked into him uh, coming out the heads. Um, he's a big old, you know, big guy, isn't he? But William, but yeah, I, he had his bodyguard there as well because he was on Tucano at the time, which were the, the one for this aircraft. So his bodyguard used to fly on a Tucano alongside him. And we always said, you say to the bodyguard, what are you here for? Because he was armed. He said, well, if William ejects, then I'll eject from my aeroplane as well. We said, do you realize that ejection can kill people sometimes? He's like, well, I've just told you. He's got a gun here or something, which is going to break all yeah, his yeah. ribs anyway. You know what I mean? He's wandering around the ground four miles away looking for William. So I'm like, oh, how's that going to work? But um, yeah, you'd expect them to get to a certain level. They'd probably be flying with a senior pilot as well right. and just doing the job whilst they try and improve. But it's a means to an end, isn't it? You're not going to. Yeah, expect I mean, I think, I think it's, it's a, it, you know, this is a bit of a, a backwater, but I think it's, it's an interesting point. And as you say, they are doing other things. It's not a bad thing to do with them. But as yeah. you say, there's lots of there's lots of young people who want to fly helicopters, and you know if you're going to bend rules in this sort of situation, should should maybe we just say this is what the deal is? Like you know, as you say, there's a senior guy in the other seat and stuff. I don't know. It's a question, or is that kind of tearing the magic away? I mean, those these are. It's just an interesting area because it hits to another sort of a number of yeah. kind of points. But it's um, it, 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 it's a bywater a bit to to the main. Yeah, so, I don't I don't know whether it's even even a thing to this is where i you know I, i'm like i don't mind it i i think that what it attracts to the military and, and what it gives to the military by having william up there flying helicopters as a royal or, or harry flying helicopter i think it's fantastic I, I i really do which is why i'm not trying to damage the reputation of the military here when i talk about the royal air force i'm looking for what's just looking for what's right and for example when the royal air force says we have a very open reporting culture it's like well come on guys it's bollocks if that was if that was the case then you'd let me put these day on screen here and we talk about the accident reports but of course you don't want that because you then they come out and they say i'm really worried if we do that then people aren't going to report things no they would they want these things to be out there that's the whole point they want these things to be discussed like we're discussing things now and my my thing is really trying to get those things um more open and it's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, we, you could say, well, do we give that slot to a royal to fly? Yeah. Or is that royal taken up? I don't think the royal does take up time, by the way. I think they they put in alongside other people that are there already in the system copes. And they, they bimble around and they go and land in the, you know, the, the palace gardens and the queen loves it. Uh, we did a fly pass for the queen. Um, 28 aircraft it was, the E2R, Jubilee it was, yeah. But the, and that's an interesting one you could talk about because the amount of training that that took, all flying training stopped because you've got putting 28 aircraft up together in the shape of an E2R. That took the Naval Squadron, 736 from Cold Rose, about to be disbanded. That took 100 Squadron up in Leeming. They all came down as well, put jets at Valley. It took um, 208 Squadron, what was left of it, I think, at Valley. And it took us on four as well to form this 28 aircraft to put the letter E2R over the top of uh, Windsor Castle. And the training must have, I don't know how long it took, weeks, weeks and weeks, yeah. where nothing happened apart from practicing for this one event. But end of the day, the military is a tool. Um, you know, the royal family. It's 
no serviceman is going to say no to that, are they? No, exactly, exactly. But it's, it's, right. a bit of a, it's a bit of a yeah, sort of side side point with it. But I think it, I think the thing with aviation is comparison with the army is interesting because, as you say, there are clearly issues here, but there is also a tradition within flying of the robust debrief because ultimately yeah, because it's about shared risk because ultimately you know, this is where the the, the, the point. The, the, the comparison with medicine, which the, some of the doctors push back on, but like if the plane crashes, the pilot dies, right? That's the that's the yeah, reason, yeah. presumably, why people are willing to say let's let's talk about this stuff openly. Whereas, you know, if you lose the war, the you know the, the top guy doesn't die. So there is something about skin in the game here, and how an institution institution fits with it. But it's yeah. it, it's a lot about organizational culture, and I think it's also about an acceptance that failure is not terminal, you know, that we have this tend to have this idea that, as you say, like you end up like Nick Welch, you'll go to prison if you drop it, you know, these term, the terminology, you know, go drop a bollock or fuck up or things like that. Like to work at a high level, both individually and institutionally, you need to have a culture where failure is acknowledged and rectified, but is also, it's not, there's not shame. Yeah, and we don't have that in the service. It's a just culture. That's what it's called, yeah. just culture. And people do fail in the service. People yeah. throw aircraft away. A lot of my friends have ejected from aircraft when they've made the mistake that should have killed them, and they're lying in the hospital bed in Nottingham, whatever, going, this is rubbish, isn't it? You know what I mean? Everything's been taken off. The boss comes in and says, oh, how are you? And the, the pilot will say, my fault, boss. Completely my fault. Uh, the boss says, well, let's talk about that later. It's absolutely fine. But the truth is, that's how we learn and mistakes are made. And if we if we try and make it so that we can't make those mistakes, yeah. then everything gets repressed and then no one's honest. And we, we had a big culture change on here. We had a French pilot, um, a, a lovely guy, came over on exchange. And I was the senior guy here on this squadron uh, under the boss. And I, I used to stand up and tell people when I made mistakes. I even used to make some up sometimes. Oh, guys, I forgot my fuel checks today. I landed below fuel. Didn't really, but I'm making it up so the younger generation can go, well, if Tim can talk about it, then maybe I can as well. And one day this French pilot stood up and he said, um, almost killed myself yesterday, did something really stupid, talked to the whole squadron about it. And everyone sat there thinking, well, if this very senior French pilot can stand here and say this and OC standards, responsible for all the flying training and standards on the largest fast jet squad in Northern Europe, can also stand up and say this. And I'm a student. Well, can I step? I can stand up as well. And and then they got a bit overly honest. And we used to say, say to the students in the debrief, we don't need to hear about that. Just cut that one out. You know what I mean? Just don't tell us everything. Just tell us a bit less. Okay. So I've got a failure trip for you. But um, I'm a big fan of, you know, first attempting learning. <clears throat> that's what I believe fail stands for. And uh, and that's that's the work I do with a lot of people at the moment is, is going through that. And uh, the thing about the Air Force, one of the things we did this week on, on the spin recovery program, which a lot of people know about on here, of course, is uh, we, the week we did this week was accepting that our current ways aren't working. And that's what I want UKMFTS to look at and have that debrief. We accept the fact it isn't working and it hasn't been working for a while. And it's got another 12 years, by the way, of not working unless we really address it. And you can't address it internally because you're too close, but you can bring in an external analysis. There is that function within the Royal Air Force to have a look across all three services by psychologists called an operational event analysis. They did one on our squadron. They shut us down for six months and rightly so. And that allowed me to get all my instructors trained because you can't train the students until you train the instructors. Instructors don't come back from the front line as instructors. It takes me six to nine months to train them up. At the elementary stage, to for the guy to or the girl to instruct, so you've got to get them trained first. And of course, the the problem with flying training is the civilian company is financially incentivized on student output, not instructor output. So of course, it's not their fault, but the contracts say that they're only going to get paid if they get the students out the door. So why would they bother training any instructors? It makes you use the same instructors that you've got to try and you know, and that's the problem. And it's a that's why it's a bit of a bit of a wicked problem unfortunately simon it's not going to be um solved overnight not going to be solved on this podcast anyway is it 
but uh <laughs> but look i think you've um you've you've definitely taught these people here something uh well a lot actually there we go yeah, it'd be a learning organization. Absolutely, Simon. Absolutely, 110%. Well, look, I know you're going to get bashed around by all sorts of um, people over the new few, few next uh, weeks or, or months. But I will say to people, look, if you are interested, go and seriously, it's, don't be put off by this like I was, by the way. Oh, it's weighing me down. It's, um, it's very readable, annoyingly so. And you do write exceptionally well. And I know you don't need me to tell you that, but I I, I do very much. No, I, you know when you read someone and you – you like reading someone, and whenever, whenever I've gone into some in depth on, on some of your articles, I I like you know I, there's a way of writing. You've learned it. You've been to Columbia, you know the, the journalist school, and that's why I think your journalism is very American, pretty much, and it is very explorative and, and innovative and, and questioning, which is how journalism should be, of course. But the book is in, is a is a is a lovely book to read. I wouldn't say that if it wasn't. I'd say, oh, go buy the book. But it's not. It's a really lovely book to read, and it's one that I know I'm going to come back to you just because of the style of writing. And you do sometimes. You are a bit okay. I'm not saying you are an, an, an antagonist. I wouldn't use that word. But in the same way that I might be, because I want to see things done right, hmm. I can see exactly where it comes from with you. I think. Well. I think. Yeah. It doesn't. I, there is something about tone, and that I felt that there is a, there's a sort of expected tone about how you write about the military that's kind of deferent and and things like yeah, that and, yeah, yeah. and I, I felt that I, I wanted to, to you know there, there's bits of the book that like I think are quite funny and uh you know that are willing and I think that in some ways is what has outraged people most about it you know that you can you can criticize people but god forbid you laugh about them you know that's the that's uh, yeah I just I, I think you're actually right but also remember there is just not this culture of of writing for the military I couldn't write I wasn't allowed to write when I was in the military I started writing back in 2011 mm -hmm. um and every day I'd, I normally publish on a Sunday evening. Oh, what, what time to publish? Monday morning comes around and I go to work. And I'll be like, oh, and people will be like looking at me funny because they would have read it online. Of course, it was critical about what we were doing here. It was questioning about what we were doing. Like, are we doing the right thing? Because if we're doing the right thing, then why are people, why are we failing so many students or whatever it might be, you know? And, and of course, that conversation was just me shouting into a void because there's no one else to talk to about it because people weren't having the online conversation, which, um, which is why, you know, I keep writing now, which is what Fast Jet Performance is all about. Uh, one quick question at the end here from Chris. Kitchens Brothers, one Anglo-American, the other a patriotic Brit who admits the demise of... I think Chris... I was a big Chris Hitchens fan. I used to read him all the time. He's talking about Peter Hitchens, of course, who writes for the Daily Mail. I think, I mean, Christopher Hitchens, the writing that... I've got some of his books downstairs, and I get, I get stuck sometimes in mid... Chapter. I don't think you had much Christopher Hitchens, but um, he's a fantastic orator as well. Yeah, I mean, a fantastic orator. I think they came from very different traditions, right? And so, so Chris Hitchens was certainly in this kind of Anglo-American tradition that, that I inhabit, but he was mm. also he was also a polemist. I mean, they're polemicists, right? Yeah, the brothers. Yeah. That they they write opinion, they write takes, and and that's that's not really the tradition that I think I fit in. I, I write reporting. Like I go out and 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 report stories and tell them and this book has you know it presents an argument but fundamentally like it I, it's a it's a reported book you know and i think that that the, i think the problem with living in in that in a journalistic ecosystem where you're writing takes is you're just you just get you're incentivized to, to just amp it up constantly yeah right? like you yeah. know to throw bigger and bigger yeah uh, bigger and bigger hand grenades basically and and you always need an argument and everything whereas i feel with what I did here, like I did, as you say, I talked to hundreds of people. I spent three years writing it. Like I can write an opinion piece now, but it is based on something. It is based on some some kind of heft and, and stuff like that. I think all I think you don't want to be 
a position as a as a journalist where you you know what you're going to write before you approach a subject. You know that's that's not a frame that that. And I think a lot of people, in particularly in an increasingly ideologically polarized world, will have an idea of like what the sort of correct or holy thing to say is, and that's just not the tradition I I kind of inhabit. I think you should go out and talk to people, and you should try and reflect back what you find. And of course, you're guided by your your biases and your assumptions and everything like that. But um, you know, I think I think it's a it's a privilege of journalism to be perpetually curious and to go talk to people. You did say, didn't you, that although you wouldn't necessarily have chosen the the journalistic education you had post-Columbia, mm. it was better than sitting in a corner of a, a newsroom. Yeah, I think you, I think there is a there is a point, but it was real, right? It yeah, was like, very, very you know, I, I went off and was it was twenty five, and you know you're in a West African country all on your own, yeah. and you've got to sort it out. And you know that is as opposed to being at the bottom of a kind of domestic food chain. I mean, it, there are other ways. You know, Rachel, who I did the show with worked up and you know she's an extremely competent person and writes very well and you know it's not an obligatory rite of passage to do but I do think there is something about putting yourself as a young person in a situation where what you're doing is real and you're you're able to kind of take on responsibility if, if only for yourself as as an earlier early yeah but think- at the same time teaming that with the fact that like you know being out in the back and beyond is not going to sort out you know, your relationship with your parents or whatever it is that's that's sending you there. Oh, my brother's in Dubai at the moment. He's been there for ages. That's <laughs> probably the same bloody thing. Um, I think once you get beaten up a bit more for this, I'd really like to talk to you again about maybe workflow and things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very, very happy to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be fascinating. And in the meantime, of course, these guys will come up with a whole world of questions, I'm sure, and they'll throw stuff at me. And so at some point, I'll have to come back on again. But yeah, it's, very, um, very happy to. Absolutely. It's pretty happening on there. And and if um, people want to come and find you, then obviously you've got the podcast, haven't you, that you do with Rachel, which... Always, is... always take notes, uh, which is which is on, on all the streams. Yeah. Like that. Um, and then I'm on Twitter under... Simon Aikham, you can find me there. My, my emails. Do you get Twitter abuse at all, do you? Or do you, is it no, not, not really. I mean, when the book came out, there was an initial kind of wave of like, you know, what the fuck does he know, and, and <laughs> stuff like that, which which is kind of understandable. But yeah, actually, yeah. The, the the advice my agent gave me, he was like, there is going to be a lot of debate and chat about this. He's like, be scrupulously polite to everyone and say it's great to have a debate. And actually, that's what I've sort of done. And yeah. now I think because once people see the book, they're like, well, okay, this is, you know, I may not agree with it, but, it, you know, he's put, he's put the hours in. And actually by sort of saying, like, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear you. So just by being civil, you know, that's the approach that I've taken. And really, really it's kind of died down. And actually it feels like there's a discussion now which I'm, um, which I'm part of. And that's, yeah. that's cool. But, I, I, you know, I think yeah. just, just not taking a bit of a step back, not like – you know, it's difficult when people, you know, are taking shots and, and stuff like that, but just going like, you know, yeah. okay, that's, that's, it is what it is. And actually, no, not, not really now. Like I'm getting, there's a lot of discussion and, yeah. and stuff like that, but, but I no not really trolls. And, you know, it helps that I'm a man. I think, I think women have a much harder time with it on, on so yeah. but, but, you know, yeah. I think there is, there's something quite magnanimous. If you can be magnanimous to say, like, look, I hear you, like, that's your opinion. That's fine. You know, let's, it's, it's quite, Talk it out. Yeah, yeah it just—it's it's just a de-escalatory tactic. You know, it's quite effective. So you haven't been invited to Sandhurst yet to give an after-dinner speech or anything. I have not been invited to Sandhurst. Yeah, I was invited to give a talk at South College. And well, then, you should do that, by the way. Which I gave, which I did actually, and it was great. Yeah. And then, and then there was a sort of slightly bizarre kind of in the thick of it type episode where they were like, oh, "We've made this a 
a set text for the Center for Army Leadership, and I put this on Twitter, and then they wrote to me, like, we haven't made it a set text. And I was like, I but, saw you wrote, but you I wrote saw. to me and had made it a set text. And I, I said to the guy, look, I don't want to put you in a difficult position here, but, like, you know, I have my kind of reputation here as a journalist, and you did say this in writing. And now, you know, I'm not going to just take this down. If you want, to, if you want me to say you haven't, but, like, you know, it was a bit, it was, it was kind of, I wondered if I was slightly dying in a ditch on that, you know? But I no, think that um, it was it was just a bit of, you know, like, I find my girlfriend says, like, Simon, you're constantly thinking the army is going to do better. And then you're constantly disappointed when it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, and, um, my life. But I also think in terms of, you know, get, getting at, we should wrap this up, but getting at some of that thing of like what you're digging at. This book has got the army out of my system. You know, it's kind of answered yeah. those questions for me. Yeah. And I can yeah. go off and do other projects. And what I don't want to do you know, there's people who live in that ecosystem of just writing about the military and stuff. And, you know, I have other projects that are completely different. Yeah. I want to go and that through. interests me. That's, I mean, yeah. I, I went yeah. through all the other work. And these are yeah. the first that I came across, I think, with the military. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I was fascinated by, you know, stuff you've written about the NHS as well. There's a whole world of stuff out there. I mean, this, to me, when you read this, this is, this, people are going to read this. Uh, and they're going to be at staff college reading this. They're going to be sitting there. This is going to be this is going to be essential. No matter what staff college says, people are going to read this. They're going to read this when they go through initial officer training that were Tanya Royal Naval College. If ever get any time, mm. um, this is the debrief. I think, as it says, post nine eleven. This is the debrief of the two conflicts that we've lost. Yeah, it's just it's a fact. Why do we lose? And, it? I, and I felt I felt someone had to do it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like like the army clearly wasn't going to itself. Like oh, there God, was a no. system of regulatory capture with with academia and with the media yeah. and i was you know i i i had i knew enough th that i could go and learn more and that i wasn't captured i you know it was interesting because that i still because that book took took so long i'm yeah. 35 now but i you know that is a book written by you know that's a book that is an angry young man's book but i also felt it was important it kind of survived as that because you know these conflicts were were fought by young people largely and i and that i wasn't beholden you know that i wasn't i was I, I, I was an insider but an outsider and that some you know you need someone in that situation and if there is another round of you know, big inconclusive wars in 20 years time i will not be the person to write the book about it because i'll be too you know i'll be, I'll be too close and and all that kind of i thing. think it served you well to not be in i mean you've got the patrick's Hennessy, of course the junior officer yeah. reading club those lovely books you've got um robert mason's chicken hawk i mean he was a helicopter pilot yeah 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 i've read that i mean that's a, yeah. Kind of, yeah. And, it, and of course that guy would be writing about being a helicopter pilot, but for something like this, where you cross so many different strands, you wouldn't be able to be someone that had been in the service in one particular service, doing one particular role, and write something like this. I don't think it would even be possible. It would be. I, mean, I think you also you need you need you need to know how to report. You need a journalist. Absolutely, background. yeah, yeah. You know, so, so that's the thing. No, absolutely. Anyway, Tim, this has been this has been super. Thank you for having me on. And yeah, happy to come back and talk process. Because I, I do think there's a lot about I mean, the thing I would maybe leave you with is like, regardless of you know, if you're writing a book, like this getting that book out was about dealing with failure after failure after like rejection after stuff not working out over and over and over again. And that's the same with any book. You know, that really is how these things are done. You know, and it's about you you've got to get yourself into a frame of mind where you can do that. And so I'm I'm a lot into this kind of you know, coaching and the yeah, you know, yourself. I think it's really significant. So you know, happy to happy to help. Well, it's, it's great for you to come on. You can see the guys have got a lot from this, and I'll be posting this all over the place when I get off. What I'm going to do is drop you down to the green room, and then I've got sure. to play it out. Plan. I've got to quickly speak to the the um, guys and girls watching because it is Wednesday, and they know it's Warrior Wednesday, and the reason for that is they need to work half the rest of the week. I need to tell them to do that. So if I drop you down there real quick, uh, and then if you just hang on there, I'll come and say goodbye in two seconds. That's cool. Right? Yeah, no problem. Thank
Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Simon. Great to have you on. Thanks, Tim. Guys, fantastic conversation. What's going on? Look, this is worth buying. I mean, it seriously is, actually. I'm not just saying it. I wouldn't just say it, guys, because I'm not that kind of guy. And I, when I bought it, I thought, oh, I've got to churn through this. But you literally get gripped in about that page there, which is that page three or four, once you've got over the index and everything else. And it's done in, it's done in five, I think it's five sections here which is just fascinating because you can dive in and out. Um, and it, it is a, it's a, it was just, you know, I think it's great. Just think it's great. I wouldn't say it wasn't. I'm going to put that on my, my central reading for the spin recovery course as well. I think there's a lot of learning in there that people can do. Um, guys, what is it? Wednesday. We know what day it is. All right. We know what's going to happen now. Okay. Get your dancing shoes on. All right. If you do want to do spin recovery guys, then by all means, contact me, Tim at fastshipperformance.com uh, and say, Tim, uh, I want to learn about self-esteem purpose, identity and negativity got seven guys on course at the moment as i said i am making one for women as well uh, with a business partner in america called Keisha. she's a lovely woman taking it stateside again okay? uh 12 weeks it's all about accountability guys if you are interested in that then i do board every six weeks so another two or three weeks we'll be boarding for another course again uh men looking after men now let me take some of this stuff down here and let me get up our outro everyone gonna be dancing okay i want to be see dancing shoes remember guys it is wednesday if you are in a job, you still have a job. That's a good thing. Then put that effort in for Thursday. Put the effort in for Friday. Grand Prix weekend as well, by the way, which is awesome, of course. Um, don't go giving your boss any excuse to get rid of you. That's a bad thing. Guys, dancing. I can see you, by the way. I can see every single one of you. All 47 of you out here, okay? So I'm going to put it on. Dance out for the weekend. Tim Davies, Varsity Performance.